Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Soundtrack Stories. My name is Brooke Schley, and today's guest is Matt Morton, the composer for the groundbreaking, award-winning documentary, Apollo 11. Now, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing just happened this year, and even though it's a historical event that's been covered again and again, I can honestly tell you it's never been done like this. Because when we think of the rocket launch and the moon landing, specifically, we think of these grainy, iconic vintage images, right? But this movie takes those images, plus other 70 millimeter archival footage no one's ever seen before, and they scanned and digitized it so everything is as clear and high definition as watching a football game on one of those new crazy TVs at Best Buy. I'm telling you, my jaw actually dropped the first time I saw it. But what also makes the movie so cool and unusual, as a documentary especially, is that there are no narrators, which means the score is instrumental, pun intended fine, okay, in guiding you through the whole experience emotionally. And it's just so different from other movie scores about NASA and space. The music is electronic and futuristic, yes, but ironically, it was engineered with instruments and synthesizers that existed back in 1969 when the Apollo 11 mission actually happened. So just how human beings got a man on the moon with analog technology, which feels dusty and archaic to us now, this composer created a sophisticated soundtrack with 50-year-old resources. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation because he not only shares how he did it, but also how he and the director, Todd Miller, navigated the overwhelming task of making a groundbreaking piece of art about a subject that's already been covered a million times before. Also in this conversation, you'll hear firsthand stories from astronaut Michael Collins, which by the way, includes one harrowing spaceship disaster you won't believe you never knew. There's some juicy stuff, I'm telling you. Uh, oh, and it's also worth mentioning that since this conversation was recorded, Matt went on to win the Critics' Choice Documentary Award for Best Score, and the film itself nabbed Best Documentary of the Year, among many other honors. It's also been nominated for multiple international documentary awards, including Best Score and Best Feature. So if you haven't seen Apollo 11 yet, don't just take my word for it when I say how good it is. The movie is available now to rent or buy, but if you are dying to see it on the big screen, you're in luck because it's being re-released in theaters starting Friday, December 7th. So without further ado, here's the episode. I am so excited for you to hear it. And I truly hope you enjoy this conversation with award-winning composer, Matt Morton. Hey, Matt, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I cannot even tell you how much I love your music in this movie. Uh, watching this old 60s footage in this sort of mega HD, it feels almost jarring when you're watching it. You kind of can't believe your eyes. And so I want to know, first off, when you signed on to the project, did you know it was going to be this visually groundbreaking thing? Um, we didn't know anything about the, the 65 or the, uh, or the 70 millimeter stuff. 
we were just kind of getting in it because we had just done that Apollo 17 short film called The Last Steps. And uh, that went really well. CNN uh, saw that and they were like, okay, we got to get you guys to do something for Apollo 11. Uh, we were like, okay, we'll do it. But we want, we don't want to do it with the existing scans of, of the film. So they agree to give you fresh scans of the footage. Okay, that was available. But at the time, you didn't know about this uncovered footage from NASA, right? H- how did you get your hands on that? We got this email from uh, Dan Rooney, the head archivist in the, I think it's in the film and uh, television kind of like media section of the National Archives. He's very even keeled, super laid back. But uh, Todd, the director, said he got this email saying like, oh, my God, you can't believe what we just found. All these reels. I think it was like 150 reels or something like that. And then we got like 11,000 hours of, of audio. So we've got all this footage. Then we have a conversation with the post house. They're like, look, if you guys can wait, we can scan all this stuff in at 16K, which is like ridiculous. Because, yeah. you know, even just jumping from 4K to 8K is not double the resolution it's actually four times the resolution so then you've got that same order of magnitude up to 16k so we're like okay so tell me what was it like seeing that scanned restored footage for the first time and knowing you were gonna score a whole movie that was gonna look like that it was incredible watching that um but my first impression when i when i saw that footage especially the suiting up really influenced the score because you could see uh, kind of, I, I won't say fear because those guys, you know, w- will tell you, I, I actually, Michael Collins was at a second, um, test screening, um, about six months later. And, you know, those guys are all like, oh yeah, we were test pilots. We weren't worried. You know, I don't know why people who never been to space always ask us if we were scared. We weren't scared. We knew what we were doing. We were just focused, but like, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I think you look at those pictures and you can see the weight of the world on those guys. Um, I wanted to put a little bit of the the visceral danger of their mission in, into musical terms. they were doing really was climbing on top of a 36 story six and a half million pound rocket that so just crazy you know that had its warhead replaced with a spaceship so <laughs> well, no, I, I mean I think it, it is just uh, that sense of danger and that sense of all the things that could have gone wrong like you know they did in Apollo 13 uh, you know Apollo 11 has been covered uh, over and over and over again um, by many filmmakers and Uh, composers and all of them not all of them but a lot of them just sort of take it for granted that they get home and they they focus on maybe the heroic or the uh, patriotic side of things Um, yeah very uh, American yeah yeah so I wanted to take a different approach and just revisit and just re-underline the enormous risks they were taking I imagine would be a very heavy task to score a movie about a subject that had been covered so much already. Honestly, I was almost like paralyzed when I 
when I got the gig because I was I was just thinking like how do you how do you sum up the importance of the work of over 400,000 people um, working on this program? How do you put that into music? Yeah. Yeah. And as if that wasn't hard enough, you only use period instruments, right? So basically meaning you made this huge electronic score with the same kind of technology that was available 50 years ago in 1969. I imagine that made things a lot harder. Um, the thought was, since we're seeing all this amazing 1969 footage, it would be cool if you were hearing stuff that could have been done at the same time, too. So I was pretty strict with that. I mean, I didn't even allow my stuff since that were made in the 70s or, you know, anywhere close. Oh, wow. As much as I could, I, I kept to um, anything that was 69 or earlier. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I was trying to think like, okay, you know, the Apollo program was the cutting edge of science at the time, um, science and technology. I was like, what else was happening at that time in music technology that kind of ended up having, you know, huge ramifications on the future of music. And the answer for me was definitely synthesizers. The advances that were being made by Bob Moog, Don Buchla, um, EMS in England, um, ARP later on. Um, actually, ARP and, um, and Alan Perlman, who founded ARP, and uh, Don Buchla both worked on the space program as engineers. <laughs> So it's kind of cool wow. that uh, that some of the early uh, synthesis pioneers were also literally connected to the space program too. So um, that makes it even more, <laughs> I guess, poetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what period instruments, per se, did you use? That I really, I only used, uh, you know, plate and spring reverbs. Um, I used old style mic preamps, obviously the Moog Synthesizer 3, which uh, was a reissue of the 1968 version of that synth. Um, they only made 25 of those. Um, and that was probably the main voice. Um, and then that was paired up with a couple of old uh, tape echoes. I started with the Echoplex EP2, which is the all-tube all Echoplex. Mm. Um, Hendrix used it in the in the 60s, and it can be uh, a little bit of a you know warm and, and slightly distorted sound. I used that on the the first cue, the, which is the Burdens and the Hopes. Yes, uh, that that plays under the suiting up uh, sequence.
Okay, so when Moog synthesizers were brand new, you know, the cutting edge of technology, who had access to them at first? Yeah, so um, really in the 60s, a synth like the one I have could cost as much as like a house and a car. So really the only people who could afford them were either universities or very uh, successful commercial composers um, or rock stars. You know, one of the most famous uses would be uh, Keith Emerson. He had a, an enormous Moog modular that he used with Emerson, Lake and Palmer. If you think of the song uh, Lucky Man, that's like uh, became kind of a, a very iconic performance on the Moog modular. by any electronic scores that maybe we would know or, or any composers? Uh, there were a few different musical influences. One of them would just be some of the early artists that were actually using the Moogs in the 60s. There was a guy named Doug McKechnie. There's a YouTube video that's like, Doug McKechnie plays the Moog synthesizer 1968 or something like that. And it's like, five or six little 30-second tastes of different ways that he used the Moog. And I heard that, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that would sound amazing, paired up with vintage uh, space footage. Of course, we've heard like all of the ways that the synthesizer got used in the 70s and 80s, you know, Tangerine Dream. Those guys uh, used the big Moog modulars uh, very famously, definitely an influence. Giorgio Moroder would definitely you fall into that category of people who used a sequencer, you know, to get that rhythmic playing of the synth. I'd say, is it Harold uh, Faltmeyer? I'm trying to see, I don't want to butcher his name, hmm. but um, I guess I'll just say the, you know, the guy who did like Beverly Hills Cop and Fletch and you know, yeah. some of those 80 scores, I liked those. I read somewhere that you'd said that 
you looked at your role on this movie as a composer that you felt you were bridging the gap between 1969 and, and 2019. Uh, and that even though you're using period instruments like the Moog synthesizer, you say that you did use modern musical idioms. And I was just wondering if you could explain what that means. Yeah, so um, if you look at just the style of the, the your average composer in, in the 60s, I would say that uh, everything was scored a little more on the nose, mm. um, meaning that, you know, if you were supposed to feel happy, they were going to give you really happy music. Yeah. <laughs> Picture like, you know, Lady and the Tramp having a walk through the, you know, yeah. park or something. If you were supposed to feel sad, it was, you know, it was going to be very st stereotypical, sad music. Yeah, um, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, in, you know, of course, there are like, there are many exceptions to any blanket statement like that. But I, you know, just fashion and style and, and taste changes quite a bit and even if you go back to and look at like 80s and 90s scoring it seems so, so wholesome or something i don't yeah. know what it is it's like it's a lot of that stuff is just a no-no now yeah you, um you know you don't want to be a, be confused with being too heavy-handed with emotion or telling people how to feel or you know, telegraphing what's going to happen or, you know, anything like that. So I basically, um, I tried to kind of paint a feel and, and not, you know, hit things a little bit more cartoony. Um, so yeah, even the nineties, like you said, were so different. The scoring styles were so different in movies. This is some of James Horner's score from Apollo 13. This is what actually plays during the rocket launch scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's a good example because that was 1995. You know, not even 25 years ago, and that would that's a lot more in the school of uh, you know John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith. You know, that kind of thing where it, uh, it would have been overkill if I would have tried to actually make it sound like you know an old school uh, score. Okay, now just to compare, let's hear how you scored the rocket launch scene in the documentary.
I mean, it's amazing. Even though these are instruments from 1969, I cannot imagine being in 1969 and hearing this kind of music in a movie at that time. You were hearing a composer who who knows what a modern audience like how they want to experience the action so looking at it in a different way um, rather than stuff I didn't want to do things I did want to do um, might have been a little bit strange back then such as using that kind of pulsing kick drum like I did yeah. that kind of evokes you know dance music or, or house um, I guess that that pulsing tended to uh, be a good vehicle for, you know, tying into, you know, the, the heart rates of the astronauts at certain points. Um, the, uh, the countdown, um, the countdown cue where I uh, used a kick drum, you know, at 60 beats per minute. whatever each one of those that kick drum is like and actually I, I, I slowly turned up the the kick as that cue went so that just more and more uh, the kick became dominant and in fact I, I kind of peeled at the end I peeled away all the instruments so that all you were hearing was that that pulse that countdown and that kind of heartbeat and and I, I feel like it ramps up the, the anticipation Speaking of heartbeats, didn't you sneak in your niece's sonogram heartbeat? Yeah. In, in yeah. There? Yeah. It, it's not there. It's actually, um, in, in, it's actually in the translunar injection queue. Yeah, she was actually just born uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, she, thank you. Yeah, I'm an uncle. <laughs> <laughs> First time. So, uh, yeah, so my sister just uh, sent me a sonogram. You know, anytime I hear a sound, whether it's like a heartbeat or, uh, you know, somebody winching up a boat into a dock or uh, some car that has a busted muffler or something like that, I, I just pull my phone out and I it so yeah. it I I took that heartbeat and I stuck it at the very end of the fade out you can hear wow. basically she's in there to represent the next generation to meet either of the living uh, astronauts, Michael Michael Collins or, or Buzz Aldrin? I met Michael Collins at uh, a test screening at the Smithsonian. I think it was August of 2018. Um, he came in with his two daughters and then both Rick and Mark Armstrong, who are the sons of Neil Armstrong, um, and their families came in 
and we showed them I think the first 30 minutes of the film and just wanted to get their feedback on what they thought of you know if we depicted you know the liftoff well if they if the sound of the Saturn V was right you know that kind of stuff and and we just wanted their kind of their support for what we were doing um I know that Todd and Tom um hosted Buzz Aldrin and some of his friends at the uh at the post house in New York City Todd really wanted them to to give them feedback like okay what did we what did we do right what did we do wrong they were both just actually very very supportive of the the cut and and said that we did a pretty good job so we were like oh no 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 okay you know you, you feel like you have to say that you like it but like come on hit us like really yeah. like how do we improve this thing <laughs> did michael collins say anything there were a couple of funny reactions um he's getting older but he's you know completely with it he remembers everything really well and he's full of all kinds of little anecdotes about what it felt like to to lift off he said that it was very quiet actually for them in the space uh ship they couldn't hear that those huge uh rockets what they did feel was a lot of correcting uh of you know micro adjustment of of the engines, trying to keep the rocket upright. Um, he he told an example. He was like, "It's kind of like if you tried to balance a, a pencil or something at the end of your finger, um, standing straight up. Like how many adjustments you have to make, right or left, to keep that point up and and keep it in the pencil upright." That's what the rocket was doing. Um, that middle engine of the five, it pivots around and make adjustments. And that's, that was all computer controlled. So it was making like so many adjustments that they were getting kind of shaken up quite uh -huh. a bit. And what about Neil Armstrong's sons, Eric and Mark Armstrong? I know they were really young in 1969, but I'm sure they remembered everything, right? What did they say about watching the rocket launch? The Armstrong boys were on a a boat uh, with their mom, and they were watching from like only two miles away. Most of the crowd watched from, I, I think it's um, five miles away, the the Cokie Beach or or whatever. So they were so close. But uh, if you watch a rocket take off, and you know the, how they have those kind of like flame deflectors where it shoots, you know, it would shoot straight down, but then they deflect it out to left and right kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they happened to be right where one of those deflected out. <laughs> so wait, they were so close that the engine smoke actually obscured their view of the launch. Yeah, yeah. Wow. They said that they didn't actually see much of the liftoff until the uh, rocket was like you know miles up above, but they knew everything was going okay because they hadn't heard any explosions or anything. But Mark Armstrong was like, that was amazing, but I want it to be even louder. He was like, it was the loudest thing I've ever heard. You know, I felt like my whole body was vibrating. And I've never seen a Saturn V launch. But from all accounts of anyone who's ever been there, they say the same thing. It's like the loudest thing you'll ever feel. And it's so impressive, the low bass that you feel. And you just feel it in your chest and all that stuff. Now, there was another guy in the audience who was a former marine i believe whose ptsd was actually triggered by that test screening wow. um the the volume and the the sound design that eric milano did 
that that was sound design um the sound mm-hmm. of that rocket all of all of that um so and right before this you had worked with todd miller on another movie todd who actually happens to be a good friend of yours you had done dinosaur 13 together and at one point while he was editing apollo 11 he just used some of the music you'd already written for that other project right yeah so um we were having a lot of trouble with the day two and three uh montage of footage the mission is nine days long so you have to make a lot of cuts to uh to keep it under uh an hour and a half which is kind of the target but yeah i had i had taken a few swings at that montage and i was trying to do something a little bit outside the box a little bit uh esoteric or avant-garde music there and it just wasn't working it needed something that that had a pulse that powered us through the thing um and he's a lot more partial to a, a constant tempo and something with a beat that he can cut to. So after me trying and failing two or three times to find something that would work, he just, he tempted in, uh, yeah, the dig scene from Dinosaur 13. Then I had the idea, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do like a, you know, a, a Moog version of that. This one was was a bunch of layers of synth, and then I recorded a bunch of layers of guitar, which I just used an acoustic and, and the little boom mic um, on my desk here that I'm recording myself with now. kind of uh, in, inspired by the sounds in, um, well, I, I can't probably probably say the band name. Well, you can bleep it out, I guess. If, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a band called Starfucker. I really love that song. I love the pulse of it. It's on a mix that sometimes I'll play in the morning if I'm like, I don't want to go to work and I'll be like, all right, they've got a bunch of layers and they all kind of fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. But uh, I definitely then, hear the connection there with that song. Yeah, I just, I love the way it moves and that's what the scene needed, so. And I want to ask you um, about my favorite song in in the movie. It's called Rendezvous. Musically, this was the highlight of the film for me. They landed on the moon and now they have to get back to Earth. And it's just this crystal clear P 
piano. It's this organic sound after, you know, so much of the synthetic and the Moog stuff. Actually, one of the only things that I post-scored in the film, meaning that uh, I got a rough cut of this early. Um, I had footage of these spaceships doing a dance, <laughs> basically. Like it, it was this choreography in space. Um, you're seeing these uh, machines, and they're, you know, they I don't know. We, we also referred to it as um, spaceship sex because <laughs> because because you know they're joining up and you know um, but it was also just I felt like the footage was just so beautiful you know you've, you've been on the moon they've they've done that um, but in order to come home we also have to do this very precise uh, thing and so both you know you've got two pilots and they've They've got to line everything up perfectly, and that, um, so it, it's controlled, but it's also it's also really beautiful, um, and it's also sort of the culmination because like once they join back up, then it's like it's like all right, you know, it's a coming back together. It's a, we're on our way home. Write that on on the guitar that piece. I did. The first part was guitar, and then there's a, a, a theme in I think it's in G minor. Everything leading up to the first shot of the command module that was actually written on piano. Uh, years ago, I think I wrote that for Dinosaur 13, but really? it didn't. I didn't have a spot for it. So, yeah, I have um, every idea that I write um, going back to high school. Um, I've got recordings of it. So, in high school, I had a you know a two dollar garage sale cassette recorder, and like where the eject button should have been, it just was missing. <laughs> um, you would actually pull a string like an old time like toilet, like in, <laughs> yeah. God, like in the Godfather where they taped the gun. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I recorded like my high school band with. And, and, and that would be a good opportunity to say that Todd was the singer in that band. So that's how long I've known the director of wow. the film. But now it's just a, a voice memo included on your iPhone. You know what I mean? So, so you're saying that 
part of Rendezvous, that crescendo moment, that that was actually inspired by something you had written that you went back to in your old archives? Yeah, the ramp up. Um, I might be able to, okay, I need to wake up my MacBook real quick. Here's the lunar liftoff. This is like the original. This is just my old grandparents' old piano. Wow. <laughs> Pause. There you go. right before the crescendo yeah and wait that so was when... written in that was 2016 that's so cool i usually don't share those recordings with anyone because they're full of mistakes and like you heard me pause like what what am i hearing in my head where is that note you know oh, so it's just like it's just little work tapes and it, it really shows like actually I'm, I'm much more intuitive on the guitar now, there's music throughout the entire movie, except when Neil Armstrong actually walks on the moon. Why did you guys make that choice to have no music during that moment? It, you know, a lot of our approach to this was informed by all of the films that came before. And so many films, when you see that, you know, first off, you know, the typical things, okay, patriotic or heroic score, mm -hmm. they all start with Kennedy's speech. Uh, the other thing that everybody does in those Apollo films is that they, um, right after that heroic speech, or, you know, the, the famous first words. Yeah, the one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah, they always seem to cut to, like, Times Square and all the mm. people. And, like, then you see, like, a family eating their dinner with TV trays, like, in Tokyo. And then newscasters repeating the line, and they really punch it up. And yeah. it's so re so refreshing to me to just, you know, you're seeing basically how Buzz saw it because he's operating that camera in the window of the lamb and he's just looking down and watching it. You experience that almost exactly how it would feel to them, which would be very quiet. I did write a bunch of music for the moon's surface, moody and minor key. And I was like, man, it'd be cool if we just like, we went against the celebration or something. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, you know, so Todd had a bunch of stuff. He's such a good director to work for musically because he knows what I can do. But he also knows, you know, sometimes the best use of music is to not have music at all. Because then, uh, you know, as you're getting ready for Lunar Liftoff, then when that music comes in, That's supposed to be, uh, I think it's summed up the best with that still shot of Neil. Once he gets in and he gets his space suit off and he's just like smiling like a, like a dumb yeah. kid on, on Christmas. <laughs> that's, what that, that's what that cue is really supposed to do is it's supposed to be the afterglow of like, yeah. you know, we just walked on the moon and that was the most amazing thing ever.
and then the queue right after that, which is, uh, is... Is it we're number one on the runway? Yeah, number one on the runway. That came as a, a note. It was kind of like, we need to punch up the adrenaline. We need to put some tension in there. I, that might have even been a contribution of um, Tom Quinn from Neon, who is our theatrical distributor. When he saw the film, I think he was like, you got to make that liftoff dangerous. You got to put some tension in there because the fact that it's called number one on the runway, that was them joking around. Like you see everybody laughing and stuff. So like if we would have left it as is, you would have had no apprehension at all for them about to lift off. that was actually a pretty dicey moment. They almost got stuck on the moon's surface. Um, there was no way to work it into the film, but apparently when they came in from being on the moon's surface, Buzz turned around. Um, once he was in the lunar module, he turned around and his backpack hit this bank of circuit breakers. And it actually broke the, the switch off of the ascent engine's oh. circuit breaker. So the one thing that they need <laughs> to be able to, to get back up to Michael Collins and like go home, that thing gets broken. They found a felt tip pen that fit into the, the spot where that button should have been so they actually fixed it. Basically, they saved their own lives with a felt tip pen. Wow, um, that's so wild. So, yeah, you can't fit in all the good um, stories. but um, And there was no you know footage of them trying to fix it. They were probably like, holy shit, how do yeah. we do this? We, uh... <laughs> oh my but, God. So, yeah, so that needed, that, that deserved a little bit more attention and, and gravitas, I thought. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you guys so much for the opportunity. It's like, you know, it's super fun to feel like this thing that you toil on for, you know, in my case, a couple of years that it's not falling on deaf ears and that people appreciate it. It really means yeah. a lot. So, yeah, thanks, Matt. Oh, thank you guys so much. And yeah. talk to you soon, hopefully. There you have it. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review. And for more on Matt and the music you heard in this episode, you can head to our website at SoundtrackStoriesPodcast.com. Again, my name is Brooke Schley. Until next time. <laughs>